Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And I like thinking about, in physics, the definition of power, right? The transfer of energy, the movement. And so if you think about empowerment and influence, particularly from the manager's perspective, they're two sides of the same coin, your power and their power. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Kick-ass teams don't happen by accident. That's the hard truth from today's guest, who brings evidence-based insights to create more positive and powerful organizations. I'm excited today to welcome Giselle Timmerman, founder of Positive Work, which trains and coaches leaders and organizations to unleash the power of their teams to reach new heights. For the past 17 years, she's been partnering with clients from startup founders to Fortune 500 teams to build stronger leadership and team cultures for greater engagement and competitive performance. Important and a focus of our conversation today, Giselle was one of the first 30 people in the world to study with Professor Martin Seligman, the founder of Positive Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. In fact, she was the youngest person in the world at the time, 2005, to have graduated with that master's degree in positive psychology, which at the time, no one had really heard of. Giselle hails from the Southwest in the USA, holds a bachelor's from NYU and that master's from University of Pennsylvania. And in addition to leading positive work, she lectures at ESA Business School in Barcelona, Spain, and has been a leader for years in the International Positive Psychology Association, whose mission is to bridge research and practice to transform organizations. Prior to founding Positive Work, Giselle served 10 years as a strategy management and leadership consultant with Blue Garnet in Los Angeles. Today, she lives in Barcelona with her husband and two girls. Giselle, it has been years since we first met in Barcelona when our coaching practices uh, were just starting to take off. So very excited to have you here today. Welcome to 97% Effective. Thank you. I remember that rainy day and thank you for inviting me to play. Awesome. Let's start with an arresting image that you feature on your website. 
It's an image of a very unique and wonderful tradition in Barcelona, where you live, the Castell. I want listeners out there just to imagine for a moment people who are decked in white with a splash of color forming a human tower as high as nine people on each other's shoulders. Think about that as four stories high. Um, this is the Castell, which is the Catalan language for Castillo, which is Spanish for a castle. So this is a totally uniquely Catalan custom dating back to the 1700s. It's really a sight to behold done during traditional festivals in that region. And I had to go back and, and look it up, but there's a motto there, strength, balance, courage, and common sense. So you've got this on your website, Giselle. Um, you call it a Catalan social phenomenon, and you say that it represents the best qualities about teamwork, which you focus on. Can you just say how you came across it and what we can learn from these Castellers? Of course. Well, I came across it in some unknown plaza in Barcelona, for sure. <laughs> As you mentioned, this is a, a cultural practice that is kind of displayed during ceremonies and holidays. But it's really interesting because communities participate in their own Castellar teams. So there's actually three parts to this tower. You've got the base, which is called the piña, which are all of these people with their hands on one another's shoulders. You've got the tower of people who have literally people's feet on their shoulders, the vertical tower. And then you have this little kid at the top, I think called the enchaneta, and they raise their hand. And I love it as a very visual metaphor of teamwork. I mean, it's teamwork in action, but also transformational leadership. And this is the leadership mindset that we reinforce in our programs because it's one of the most effective leadership styles, and it's the focus of more research studies than all other leadership theories combined. And I think there are three things to pull out as you look at that tower. Number one, everyone is a leader, right? And we really define that as someone taking responsibility to motivate others towards shared goals. Because if you look at it, you can't even define who's the leader. The first person to stand, the kid at the top, right? So every person matters. Second, they all extend trust. You have to convey to the other person that you believe that they're dependable, I mean, if you see someone struggling and shaking, you do something about it, right? The stability of the whole requires that you do that. And third, I love that you see that vulnerability and psychological safety. You're going to fall. You're going to get injured. How do we react to those mistakes? You might stick your foot in your boss's face, and that's okay. <laughs> and uh, they actually, there's a fourth element we haven't talked about. I was watching this with friends. There's this person called the cop de col or cop de cola. This is the team lead or the coach, someone who's not part of the castle, but is looking out for the whole team, decides who will climb, makes the call if it's lacking stability. And so I think all of those parts illustrate great leadership and teamwork in action. That's a fantastic and, and wonderful image. I'm sure we're going to come back to it and how you broke that down into those four pieces. Because this very much, as you said, links to your work, which is grounded in positive psychology, leveraging people's strengths. So the podcast here, season one, you know, we're really focusing on power and influence. And just mm -hmm. any comment right off the bat about how you define these forces or how they show up in your work? 
Oh, 100%. They're, they're huge. I'm so glad that you're really zooming in on this topic. The program we're most known for is called Manager's Multiplier. And a big component of that is how you empower your teams. And one of the six core modules is called influence. <laughs> and the way we define it, of course, power is the potential to influence. To empower is to give power to someone. And I like thinking about in physics, the definition of power, right? The transfer of energy, the movement. And so if you think about empowerment and influence, particularly from the manager's perspective, they're two sides of the same coin, your power and their power. So we, this is core to our work. And many people at first when they see, huh, influence and management, but wait, they're the boss. Uh-uh. <laughs> A good leader cannot simply rely on that positional authority to influence others. So we've got that combination of positional and personal power that they need to flex. So those two sides of the, the same coin. And if we wind the clock back, okay, you know, when you started in positive psychology, it was an emerging <laughs> field, as I mentioned in the introduction. Mm -hmm. What brought you there? What's the backstory? Well, Michael, if we were closer friends, you would know I take a lot of leaps in my life, and this was one of those. At the time, I was at NYU studying sociology and psychology. Uh, my senior thesis was on wealth and happiness in 2003, and I came across the work of Ed Diener, who unfortunately passed away last year, but he coined, he defined the term subjective well-being. He's the reason we now measure gross national happiness on a global scale. So he's actually the reason I became interested in positive psychology. And then there was this opportunity to join the first class in 2005 with Marty Seligman and Ed Diener and Chris Peterson and the other forefathers of the science. So I hoped it would inform my professional toolkit. I had no clue, but I knew it would impact all of my other life roles outside of work. And luckily that bet paid off. And as you mentioned, we're the pioneer class, but at the time, let's be honest, we were the guinea pigs. <laughs> <laughs> and that leap took you eventually over here to Europe. And, and, and so positive psychology now is very much out there. It's a huge theme in these past couple of years where we've been talking about resilience, where we've been talking about issues of trust in organizations uh, that you alluded to earlier. Because positive psychology gets talked a lot about, we'll dig into this. If you had to break it down or just share some of the kind of the core basic tenets mm -hmm. of it. Sure. So it, you know, it has a short history, but a long past. Athenian philosophers of the West to Confucius and Lao Tzu of the East have all been asking, what's the good life? Is virtue its own reward? What does it mean to be happy? And so positive psychology was this uh, counterbalance, essentially, in around the year 2000, where we decided we need to devote attention to psychological well-being and human flourishing. So it is the scientific study of what goes right in life, and it takes seriously studying the subjects about what makes life worth living. And I take the approach uh, of our work life, right? We all have peaks and valleys. Positive psychology does not deny the valleys, but a good life deserves attention, too. And, and I'd say that one of the most important things to think about is that, particularly for organizational life, we tend to have it backwards. For example, we will analyze unhappy customers to learn about how to create happy ones. We'll measure disengagement and have exit interviews 
to learn how to create more engaged and satisfied employees. But good is not the opposite of bad, right? You get not bad. <laughs> mm. And so we are most curious about the best leaders, the best teams, the deviants, and then taking what we can learn from that to the rest of the organization. And you know this as a coach, Michael, right? You as coaches inherently see their clients as resourceful and whole, right? You are, you are strengths-based, not deficits-based uh, by nature of your profession. And so positive psychology is about reorienting our attention towards that positive deviance. I remember when we, we first met for that coffee years ago, and years back I had also thought about the positive psychology program, but when we had met, I had, we had this discussion. I had some, some issues, I guess, with, with the area of positive psychology because I felt like people really didn't understand the roots of it or oversimplified as we tend to do with social media or misapplied it, and even in ways that, or they thought they were applying it, that damaged their careers, which, which led to an article I wrote in Harvard Business Review and some, some work I usually cite in Leadership Quarterly. Can you, you know, I, I've seen some of your talks and you two are on the record for getting frustrated by what you call kind of these quick tips that are thrown mm-hmm. out there about creating positive or effective cultures. And you've looked more than anyone here at a lot of the research in the field. Can you just speak to how positive psychology or you find it sometimes gets misinterpreted or gets misused or misapplied? I mean, what should, what should people be watching out for if they really want to understand the roots and be careful of how it's being misapplied? Yeah, no, I appreciate the criticism, and I think that it's healthy and important. As long as, if you listen to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or RBG, right, dissent for making the future better. So as long as it's a contribution, not criticism, to the conversation. So I think what we need to look for when it comes to applying positive psychology in the workplace is making sure that we're tethering our interventions, usually what we call it as a practitioner, to critical business outcomes. We know, for example, a meta-analysis by Donaldson and others was put out a few years ago that positive psychology interventions work (laughs) so they can improve desirable work outcomes like job well-being and engagement, right? They can also reduce negative or undesirable outcomes like stress or emotional exhaustion at work. But we have to make sure that we are taking the proper evaluation methods and practices that tether the intervention towards the desired business outcome in order to make sure that we are not only thinking about intervention, person, context, fit, but we are responsible practitioners making sure that we are understanding the variables contributing to the outcomes that we're seeking. And the evaluation practice of most practitioners is hard to find. And I, I, I said there, you know, we get frustrated by people who have kind of quick tips, but I'm still going to ask you that question anyway, because this <laughs> podcast, people are listening to it and saying, well, how can I, you know, yeah. practically apply it, let's say next week when I go into the office. Is there, and you talk a lot about as a coach, kind of, working with people's strengths, the kind of positive side. Mm-hmm. Is there an application that people out there could, could be thinking about and take into work next week, for example? Yeah, well, let me introduce people to Marty Seligman's general framework around flourishing because our well-being is probably a personal resource we're overlooking at work. 
because we know that there's actually a causal relationship between happiness and success that we call the happiness advantage. Just for a little bit of science, the U.S. Department of Defense, the largest employer in the world, tracked 1 million employees for five years and measured their happiness. This was in the MIT Sloan Management Review. They found that those with the highest positive well-being had four times the number of award recognitions as those with lowest well-being scores. So happiness there was a predictor of performance, and it's very rare to get awards at the Department of Defense. We also know that these happier people have higher incomes, more friends, longer marriages, and less cardiovascular illness. So what can we do? Marty Seligman put out this framework uh, of this theory of flourishing that we call PERMA. It stands for positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And my clients find that just knowing these five drivers or pillars of well-being is enormously helpful for diagnosing where to focus your attention. So for example, positive emotion. What sort of mix of emotions and beliefs is governing your daily experience lately? Engagement. Are you loving what you're doing? Are you getting into the zone? Relationships. Do you have caring and trusting relationships with your colleagues? Meaning. Do you know what you're working towards? (laughs) And then accomplishment. Are you making progress towards what you're working towards, those meaningful goals? And do you feel as though you're continually improving? You can do a quick audit of your well-being at work, then focus your attention in those areas. That can then do things like uh, prevent burnout. It can improve meaning at work. There are a variety of areas where you can take action. But I would start there. It's a fantastic summary. And and I want to have a discussion around this because these areas which which clearly drive well-being and satisfaction and ultimately we know lead to better organizations you know there there's a fair amount of people out there and many of the clients I work with who you know initially will say hey I I do a lot of these things I'm you know I'm very positive many of the things that you've talked about you know where they focus their attention they're doing doing things well they say that they're team players, et cetera, but they find themselves in organizations getting passed over, right, for promotions or being taken advantage of. Are, are they getting things wrong about how to behave in an organization, or is there something here about the context of the organization that's, that's leading to these, what you might say are suboptimal outcomes, right, if someone's goal is to, to rise in an organization where they're doing good things, but good things aren't happening to them? Yeah. So, I mean, it brings up two questions. Number one, how much influence can we have in our well-being at work at the individual level? Right. So, for example, take burnout. Pre-pandemic, burnout was seen as an employee problem that you got to solve through (laughs) self-care. Now people realize you can't yoga or meditate your way out of burnout. We need actually uh, to involve the team. Right? There are team factors at play that contribute to a sense of burnout. Similarly for well-being. You can do all the work on your own as an individual, but if you're not involving the team practices, processes, structures, rituals, then it will be very hard to actually sustain that well-being for the long run. So there's that. Right? I really think that well-being is a team sport. The second aspect that you bring up, you know, kind of putting in all the work, doing the right things, and then still missing out on perhaps some of those markers of success, like let's say a promotion. 
in my coaching and leadership development work, I find that typically it, that results from kind of two things, either a lack of awareness of how things really get done within that organization or someone who might be resisting experimenting with a different influence style. I have definitely had my own experience of these things and I know my clients do as well. When you say different influence style, an example there? (sighs) Let me give you just a fun example. I have a friend who lives in Hawaii and she was living in Argentina for a time. And she needed me to help renew her passport at the LA passport office. So I did this for a friend. I'm sitting there in front of the agent, convincing her my friend couldn't make it, you know, using all these logical reasons why she couldn't be there to help renew her passport. It just was not landing. (laughs) And then I tried a different tactic. And I said, you know, if she can't make this trip, She's not going to be able to see the love of her life, her boyfriend, who is in Argentina. And oh my goodness, that woman could not give me the passport quick enough. (laughs) So this is that kind of, I was really trying to convince her to help me out versus trying to find a compelling approach towards getting what I needed in that situation. And uh, it applies at work as well when we're managing stakeholders. Uh, that we oftentimes need to flex different styles of influence. So it's a lot there about flexing then and has nothing to do with, say, positive psychology. It's a willingness to understand the context and influence kind of using different different levers. Yes, but I think it starts with psychology because I think influence always starts with our um, level of trust, right, with that relational capital. And then you build on where you have that trust by, of course, understanding their needs and wants, their interests and likes, their concerns, who else matters in their worldview, and then flexing perhaps a different style in order to get towards your goal or your shared goals. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now back to our interview. What about as well, I mean, we, there's no shortage of toxic organizations and cultures out there. You mentioned before this kind of understanding how things get done in your organization. And it's an exercise too I do with, with, with people I coach. Say, you know, look at the past people who've gotten promoted and the things that they're doing. And, and we do see lots of organizations. Narcissists do tend to rise. Mm-hmm. Maybe certain situations where things need to move quickly. So you see leaders who more manipulate, use fear. This is coming up. Big thing, you know, with Elon Musk and the way he's running organizations right now. Not putting any value or judgment on there. But if you kind of see that happening in your organization, which kind of runs counter to a lot of what we've just been talking about, you know, should people just be leaving? I guess they have done that. But what does positive psychology have to say about when you're in that that larger context organization? Well, I can't speak for positive psychology, but that that dark triad of personality traits, right? Narcissism, psychopathy, Machiavellianism. It definitely is overrepresented in government. (laughs) We know this. But I'd say two things to to your 
provocative question. First, I think we like to go to extremes, right? Such as manipulation. We tend to think of like con men, but manipulation happens all the time in our lives. And psychology has a lot of research to back this up. Yes, you will have hard tactics like the aggressive ask or demanding compliance, but you also have relation, uh, rational tactics like a pricing strategy or even the layout of the grocery store influencing what you're buying. And then in the workplace, we also have soft tactics like complimenting someone so that they'll like you better or using listening skills like acknowledgement, which we know can cut the time it takes to resolve a conflict in half. And I'll even point to a fun study that was published in the journal Emotion in the last year. They wanted people to feel this positive emotion of awe. Awe is that feeling that you're a small piece of the larger universe. For me, I feel it when I'm sailing. And so they had participants do a writing exercise or seeing these awesome pictures and videos of nature. And it boosted their feelings of shared humanity. Okay, Manipulated their emotions, you could say. (laughs) And then in some cases, folks were invited to donate money to charities. One was a globally focused charity. Another one was benefiting just Americans. And guess what? Those induced to feel awe were more globally focused and more willing to give to global charities. So effective? Yes. Is it morally wrong? I don't think so. So that's an example of positive manipulation And I think that this is something we should take seriously uh, in our lives and in our leadership uh, when it comes to making sure that we're allocating resources towards the right goals. So this is, it's a lot about reframing how you think about manipulation. I like what you said of people kind of going to the extremes. Anything that is viewed as manipulation, which could be similar to influence, some people just dismiss that and see it as unethical or things they won't do. Is that broader, broader thinking? I think that's one important consideration. And then the second, if people are getting this feeling like, ugh, do I belong here? You've got to come back to your personal purpose and your values. If there is a mismatch between your long-term goals uh, for your work life or your values and the organization's values and what you're seeing exhibited by leadership, then I would take seriously the question you posed that it is maybe time for a change. Let's, let's shift to, to the work you do around leveraging strengths. I was thinking back, I was just recently on a plane ride, and luck we have it, <laughs> I sat next to another leadership coach, and she was uh, raving about the, the workshop she had just given and kind of using strengths and how the team really gravitated to that. I know that is also a centerpiece in the work that you do, what is the connection between the, the field of positive psychology or, and strengths, if, if any? Oh, well, I mentioned PERMA. That E, that engagement piece, is really about applying the best of yourself at work. So we think about strengths as defining the best of who we are. And it starts with just listening for strengths. So even, Michael, in that little story you shared, right, I'm willing to bet you brought your strength of curiosity to that conversation. Perhaps also some open-mindedness. You're kind of thinking about how the strengths workshop would apply to your own clients, right? So I can see that even your strengths impacted that, that uh, conversation that you had. But 
To be very direct, I see strengths as a force multiplier. They're how our brains are wired to perform at their best. We find that people's strengths generate their highest performance today and their greatest potential for improvement and growth tomorrow, which is a misconception of strengths. We tend to think that our strengths are where we're already performing well. Mm -mm. Tends to be where we have more appetite and motivation to invest in ourselves. And we know that strengths-based teams are more effective, they're better at communication, they're more resilient. And we know that when people are able to apply their strengths to their, to their roles, they're more effective and engaged, and they tend to feel as though they're growing more purposefully in their careers. I love that nuance. And so then how should we be thinking about weaknesses? Mm. So let's start by expanding our definition of a strength. I think that's what positive psychology has really helped with because most of us think about our strengths when we've got that job interview, right? Tell me about some of your strengths. And you're just kind of thinking about what you're good at. But that's not enough because I'm willing to bet there are some things you're good at that you don't really enjoy doing. And I don't think it's fair to call that a strength. So first expand our definition. A strength is usually something we're good at, but also we find energizing right? It engages us. We can get into that sense of flow. So a strength can be a skill, like a learned skill. It could be a talent, something you're naturally good at, or it could be a character strength, right? Which is what we call positive personality traits. And positive psychology created a language called the via of those positive personality traits. So then to your question, what is a weakness? In order to identify a weakness, I would ask myself two questions. Number one, a weakness is something that truly gets in the way of our success or the success of others. And if that is the case, based on feedback you received, address it head on. Usually there's a learned skill you could acquire to help you to mitigate the impact of that weakness. The second question I would ask yourself, and this is usually counterintuitive, is to look at your top strengths as a potential source of weakness. Because I find in my coaching clients all the time (laughs) that our strengths overplayed can be a source of weakness. These are situation-specific shadow sides, if you will, that can get you into trouble or limit you. And I've got a wealth of examples. (laughs) How about one? You've got one that's uh, top of mind Uh, here. I'll give you one for me. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So for example, I'm high in curiosity and had, I had to write into my wedding vows not to ask questions during movies. But more seriously, I'm working with someone, for example, right now who is very strategic, very futuristic, and they're really trying to communicate more in a way that inspires their team. But the problem is they're so strategic and futuristic that they're thinking a few steps ahead of people and they don't know how to slow down their thinking to communicate it in a way that brings others along, right? And so when now that this leader has identified that, we can then set some tripwires for ourselves, some reminders to make sure that we're balancing that strength when, it's, when it might be overplayed. This piece around self-awareness is so important. And I mean, what are the top ways you can ask for feedback? You could take the strengths finders assessment with your team and see how you stack up. But are there other other ways that you find are very effective for people to to get self-awareness quickly? 
quickly? Well, you can take an assessment. I'm certified into all three on the market, but I'm actually tool agnostic. There's no replacement for gathering feedback on what we call your positive blind spots. So strengths you're not even aware of. We think of, I sometimes think about strengths as the bridge of your nose, right? They're so natural or obvious to you that you don't necessarily take them for, you take them for granted and don't necessarily appreciate them. So if you can gather feedback on you at your best, short stories of you at your best from colleagues, uh, this is a really good starting point. And I've done this exercise with groups of leaders where quite literally before a break, we will say, text or email eight of your colleagues, ask for a short story of you at your best, offer to repay the favor, and give them a deadline. And we do that exercise within a day. You can also use an assessment. So for example, I work with a procurement team And as part of their onboarding, they do a strengths assessment to make sure that people are really playing to their strengths, but also communicating to their new team members how they work best. And procurement is a really interesting group to work with because their entire working style is influential, right? They're working across an organization uh, to try to be influential. And so, for example, I'm working with this woman, Anna, She had very high awareness of her strengths. She was high in empathy, high in individualization, which is understanding the needs of an individual, and high on relator. And she said, this is my secret sauce. Anytime I'm working with a stakeholder and I need to build a strong relationship with them in order to be influential, I learn some words in their language, right, in order to bridge cultures. That's that individualization. And she says, I introduce my, she uses that empathy to introduce herself as a supportive person, not necessarily an expert, but as a support. And she sees this as kind of giving an offer versus an expectation of her role. She told me this within the first five minutes of meeting her. I just thought, wow, (laughs) talk about strengths-based self-awareness targeted towards being more influential in her role. That's a a brilliant example. <laughs> what a client to have who's who's aware at that level when when you're when you're meeting them. Mm-hmm. Giselle, if we go back to that image of the Castellars, you know, in the, the castle, you know, one of those four pieces is around trust. And much of what you've been talking about here is knowing your strengths, being aware of, you know, with other people and influence. And I liked one thing I heard you say about these kind of micro moments. Can you talk a little bit of because trust is so fundamental, but we see plenty of organizations where it doesn't exist. There may be situations where it doesn't exist and you want to be really careful mm-hmm. of how you show up in places. Can you speak a little bit about yeah. that? I think that word micro moments is key because trust is never static. <laughs> in every single micro moment, you're either building it up or diminishing it. And so I like to think about trust using the metaphor of Stephen Covey's emotional bank account. Are you familiar with yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if you're making these deposits that matter to the other person and being mindful of those withdrawals. And so when I'm working with leaders talking about trust, I introduce them to the three C's of trust. And you can think about making deposits in these areas. Character, competence, and care, right? Character is about your words, being credible, being honest, being consistent, sharing your point of view, your values, your goals, Competence is that reliability, dependability, judgment, know-how. And then care, it's not mushy. It's making sure that people feel safe sharing with you. 
It's that genuine warmth, compassion, non-judgmental acceptance. And I think it's really important to start with, which currency do you feel strongest with? So for example, the research indicates not a lot of women lead with competence. They'll lead with more care, right? So ask yourself, which currency do you feel strongest in? And then which do you need to boost? And then think about the sorts of deposits you could make in that area of trust, character, competence, and care, in order to improve the balance of a relationship. That's always where I start, looking at our preferences, but also thinking about small deposits we can make in other areas that are maybe less of a go-to. Giselle, you break down things so incredibly well, particularly the evidence here around these topics we've been talking about. And it's the million dollar question that I know we're not gonna answer here, but why do we have so many organizations that are screwed up? Why do we have so many toxic cultures? (laughs) When, When much of this evidence is quite clear about how we build more trust, better effective teams, which leads to better performance. What's going on? (laughs) Do you have a particular strong perspective on this? I don't, to be honest, Michael. I'm so lucky. Most of my clients are already really strong and they are people first cultures because I don't work in turnaround situations. I work in kind of moving from from good to better. You know, I, I have to believe at the end of the day that people are doing the best they know how And for whatever reason, change, uncertainty, short-term thinking, (laughs) the way that we measure value in organizations, I think leaders are under so much pressure to get results that this human side can feel like a nice-to-have. And that's one of the most important things about our work is that we really want to make sure that uh, you don't, it's not a (laughs) trade-off, right? that being a human-centered leader, focusing on engagement, attrition, flexible ways of working, employee well-being, right? That you can perform very well while also doing very well. In other words, have high impact and fulfillment without burning out. It just takes time. It takes partnership. It takes the space to to develop some of that self-awareness, to seek the feedback, to experiment with different ways of leading. And uh, yeah, it's my greatest wish that all leaders were equipped with those mindset skills and tools, Uh, but they're not. Business schools aren't necessarily preparing us well. Our educational system doesn't even talk about strengths, Michael. (laughs) This This is something that's very, very new. And if you look at just the way that humans are wired with our negativity bias and our emphasis on, on, on problems, problem finding, it requires attention and deliberate attention to do some of these things differently. So it's a roundabout way of saying I have an empathetic view <laughs> for those leaders, but I, I, I also believe that with the right support, people can tap into the, the best of who they are and it, it taps into the best of the human condition, I believe, as well. Yeah. Going back to what you talk about here, the roots within, with flourishing. Giselle, you have been working based out of here in Europe. Uh, you, you work with a lot of multinationals and you work um, here in Europe and with a lot of groups of, of women as well. Any, any reflections? Uh, we're, we're both from the States, uh, Americans, but we have been outside our country, I dare say probably more than we've been in it. A- <laughs> any thoughts on what you've picked up from, from that experience or what you've observed? 
Oh, it is such a privilege to be an American working in Europe, I do have to say, because it, it really brings a breadth of perspective. In terms of the populations I work with, I usually work with multinationals. So working across differences in geos and cultures is really important. So this skill you focus about focus on influencing without authority is ever more important. Just to rewind on your question, what am I noticing from a global perspective? I think it goes back to the emphasis of this season one of your podcast, which is influence. This idea of influencing without authority is even more important when you're working in global, multinational, multicultural audiences where you can't rely on, quote, ways of doing things or the rule book. You've got to know the individual. You've got to practice empathic listening. You've got to build trust differently with different folks. You've got to flex your your powerful inquiry to understand other people's needs and motivations. Um, To be honest, I think that being in Europe, folks are educated to be, um, dare I say, better (laughs) at gathering um, multi-stakeholder perspectives to inform their work and their goals than perhaps even Americans are. Very interesting insight. Probably the subject for another another <laughs> podcast and conversation. As yeah. as we come to the towards the end here, Giselle, you've been working kind of with this foundation of positive psychology. Your work, you know, in the association continues. You have a leadership role there. What is the source that people should go to if they're they're most obviously looking at, at, at your site and the work that you're doing, but is mm-hmm. there kind of a go-to that breaks down some of the latest in positive psychology, or is there an emerging area you find very interesting yourself that you feel the field is moving in? Um, you know, a go-to is always the University of Michigan's Positive Organizational Scholarship Center. There, For example, there's one area of research that I really think your listeners should be aware about, which is their findings on positive energizers. So Kim Cameron at the University of Michigan has studied positive energizers. Rob Cross at the University of Virginia doing social network analysis has looked at positive energizers. And it is fascinating and I think lesser known research. So for example, Rob and Kim have been looking at energy networks and organizations for 20 years and they have yet to see anything out predict energy in terms of predicting high performers and where innovation is happening. We usually think about influence as as hierarchy or who has the information. But their research confirms that positive energy is four times more important in predicting performance than either influence or information. The impact of being an energizer on others is extremely strong. So, for example, uh, the University of Michigan... um, holds a lot of that research. I would go to them for that. Positive energy. That's the, the field and the area. It's called, so the term is a positive energizer. It's an easy concept to understand, but almost never consciously managed in organizations, right? And, and it's not this American idea of oozing the positive emotions or expressing this sort of toxic positivity or Pollyanna-ish nature, the impact of being a positive leader is measured like this. After interacting with this person, do you typically walk away a little bit more enthused, 
a little bit more engaged in what you're doing. That question is so predictive, right? And anybody can learn some of the skills to to develop the self-awareness for how to be a bit more of a positive energizer. And this, again, crosses cultures and countries, this research. That's pretty exciting. I'm going to make sure we put that in the show notes and, and take a deeper look myself. Giselle, total pleasure today. Any last piece you want to add here that we haven't talked about that's important to you? I think it's the power of, if I, if I could take a minute, it would be the power of inquiry in order to be more influential. We know as coaches the power of questions, and so many of us think that influencing requires changing someone's mind. That is only sometimes true because reason and logic don't work as much as we think that they will. And so equipping ourselves to have some very powerful questions in our back pocket is something I would really encourage. And so there are three types of questions I would encourage us all to think about. First of all, general powerful questions that start with the what and the how, right? So many times a leader will come to me and they say, well, I need to be more influential, but I don't know what they need. I don't know what they want. I don't know what they really care about. So you ask those open-ended questions. How do you see this potentially applying to your situation? Seeing how it lands, especially in a virtual environment, asking questions like, are you hearing things about this that you like or that you're not so sure about, right? The second sort of question we need to be asking are those questions that anticipate resistance to our proposal. <laughs> Saying things like, you might be thinking we won't have enough time or enough budget, or I can see that you have some doubts, or what other concerns that you have, do you have? Asking these questions really helps another person to free their attention from the voice in their head to listen to you. And you show yourself as smart and reasonable since you see their point of view. So for example, with career questions, could I ask for advice? Can we talk about a conversation about my career path? These questions that ask for permission or anticipate resistance are quite powerful. And then Zoe Chance, I love her book on influence she calls it the magic question, and I use it all the time. It starts with, what would it take? Right? For example, what would it take for me to get to the next step in my career? What would it take for you to get excited about this initiative? It's a catalyst for creativity. It unearths really important information, and it really shifts the conversation towards collaboration. So I would just encourage all of us to get playful with the sorts of questions that we're asking, because I think powerful inquiry is one of the most underused practices for being more influential. Awesome. Giselle, it's been many years, so I'm glad that we have reconnected <laughs> here. Giselle Timmerman is the founder of Positive Work. You can look at the show notes on how to reach her. But Giselle, what is the best way for people to follow you, see your work, reach out to you, engage you in a workshop or leadership seminar? LinkedIn is always a great starting point. So you can reach me there or the newsletter at positivework.com on the resources page. That's where we share uncommon tools, practices, and inspiration for team leads. So either of those, but I look forward to connecting. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. 
help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.